excited today to get to share the truths, what we know to be true about our position in Christ and to talk about our arch nemesis, our enemy, the opposer, Satan. I uh, speak with no fear today because of who I am in Christ, and you should sit there in no fear because of who you are in Christ. We have no reason to fear um, the devil nor his tactics, but we should be equipped, we should be informed, we should be ready, we should be armored up, we should have our physical bodies and our spirit beings ready to be on the alert. Sober, Scripture says, be alert and sober-minded so that we can be ready to, to take on the tactics of the devil. Satan is clever. In fact, if you look in Scripture, there's many names for him. There's almost 20, some say 21. I have a few of them listed here. He's called the God of this world. He's called the tempter. He's called the enemy. He's called the adversary. He's called the father of lies. He's called the accuser. He's called the man of sin. He's called Belial. He's called the wicked one. He's called the prince and power of the air. He's called the dragon, the devil. And he doesn't seem like someone you want to invite for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, but some of us unknowingly invited him. And not invited him, but entertained him. Many of us stood against the, the schemes and the powers of the enemy. All that to say this, we have a real enemy. We are spirit beings with a spirit enemy. And we must aggressively take our stand with no fear, but be properly equipped so that we can live to the redemptive potential Christ has created us to live. You'll hear me say that until I breathe my last breath. We can live in such a different way if we walk in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. Not be based upon our ability, but because of him living through us. He desires that we live in a victorious way with him as our God and as our confidant as we walk through this life. Satan is clever, and he's been doing what he's been doing for a very long time. And the truth of the matter is this. He starts at a very early age with us. And so his primary target is when we're first born. And so Satan is very interested in new births as mothers and fathers are interested in new births. And so as you gather at this, the nursery at the hospital and you gather to look at your baby and peer in at all these beautiful babies in behind the glass and there's a name tag on there, the very moment that you are there, there's an enemy after the soul of your child. I don't know if you aggressively think through that, but that's a reality. Satan sees a child as an opportunity to influence the world in the way that he wants to influence the world. For me personally, often when I'm meeting with a newborn parent and, or newborn parents and a newborn, one of the prayers that I always articulate, always articulate in the midst of praying over this child, I pray these words, Dear God, I pray that this child comes to know Jesus Christ at an early age. I think that's the greatest prayer that any parent can pray regularly over their child. Reason why, when the Holy Spirit invades our lives and we're indwelt by the Spirit, the point of salvation, we're born again, we now have Christ empowering us. But until that time, until that moment when your child turns to Jesus Christ, they can become a tool of the enemy and used by the enemy. And he is on a, a, a mission to disrupt, to take, and steal the soul of your child. Parents here have newborn babies. Parents who have children who have yet to come to know Jesus Christ. Listen to me. You should be on your knees daily, regularly, begging God. Please, God. Please, Lord, save the soul of my child. Because that child will have an opportunity then to walk through this world in the power and authority in Jesus Christ and to overcome the enemy. It's important as parents, even in this room, or parents-to-be, even grandparents, to equip our children so they have a fighting chance in this world. Not even a fighting chance, but a winning chance in this world. Think about this for a second. How have you as a parent and a grandparent equipped your children to battle in this world? I hope and pray that you personally are a person who understands the spirit world, and maybe you need to go back and, and pull your 15-year-old and your 14-year-old, and maybe your grown child, and say, listen, this is something that I, I want to make sure that you get. And so you need to explain the spirit world that we live in. Last night, as a family, we walked through our home after the Thanksgiving weekend, and we walked through every room. My, ki my two older kids are home from college, and we walked through every room, and we just, we prayed through every single room, every closet, 
basement, garage, and we just prayed and we dedicated to God. And, and the beauty in that is my children understand that there's a spirit enemy. And so we walk through rooms and I would just say, okay, who wants to pray in this room? And so every child prayed, my wife prayed, and, and we dedicated this room and we dedicated over to God and, and we spoke in authority in the name of Jesus Christ and the power that he exudes through us to, to, to tell any evil spirit, any demon to leave this place. And we called out the coordinate points of our home and we said, God, this is your place. We bless it in your name. We ask that you send angels to guard the palace of the Browns. Listen, that should be something that we regularly do. In that moment of walking through the house, there was many moments when, I hear, when you hear your kids pray and understand those things, you know that you've given them a tool to properly walk through this life. We walked into my older son's room downstairs and it just so happened, I said, who wants to pray in this room? And my younger son, Isaiah, said, you know what, Dad, I'll pray in this room. So it was I just, I was blessed by him listening and praying to God. And he said, along these lines, he said, God, I just, we just dedicate this room to you. And we pray when Josh walks into this room that's filled with joy and love. And then, and then he said something like, God, any, anything that's in this room and anything that's in this closet, anything that's been bought or brought up from the outside that was intended for evil, God, we ask you to bless it. And it just, that blesses my heart to know that children can be equipped young so that they can battle in this world. I really encourage you, as the father and the gatekeeper of your house, listen to me, stand at the door and the gate and say, not on my watch, Satan. This is your place, Jesus Christ, and this is your place we dedicate to you. Let me begin by saying a a couple other preliminary things. Satan does go after children. And sometimes as parents, we try to raise our kids and give them behavioral patterns. And when they don't do what we do, we try to fix it physically. Your child does something disobedient. He does something or she does something that you don't want him to do. Our first primary way to fix that child is to have a physical punishment. Time out. Time away. Or we, 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 we corporately respond to them in another way. It's like, this is the pattern. So we're trying to fix them with a physical issue, and it might be a spiritual problem. We do it all the time as parents. Let me ask you, when your child misbehaves or your child is disobedient, what's your primary method of, to correct that behavior? Is it, well, time out, time away. I'm going to put you over here. Has that been your, your MO for your whole parenting procedure in your whole parenting time? If it is, listen, please, that is only one small way. They're spirit beings with a spirit enemy. Let me give you an example how, how this plays out. Dr. Neil Anderson gives an example. He says this, I'm often asked if little children can come under attack. The answer is yes. Three of my seminary students have told me about strange behavior patterns in the respective children. At times, each of these kids stepped out of character and misbehaved. No attempts at discipline seemed to work. In other words, we tried this, we tried this, we tried this, and they just keep doing it. I encouraged my students to ask their children if they were having thoughts which provoked them to misbehave. In all three cases, they answered yes. When those, these parents dealt with the deception instead of the misbehavior, the discipline problems cleared up. One young boy who was caught lying and cheating and stealing from his parents on a regular pattern, and this, this parent tried to fix it in a physical behavioral response, said this, said that the, that, that the, the child responded by saying, Daddy, I had to do it. Satan said he would kill you if I didn't do this. The boy's father told me that if he hadn't heard me speak about the battle for the mind, he would severely have disciplined his son for trying to blame the devil for his actions. Instead, he confronted the enemy's lie and hugged his son for trying to save his life. The lying and stealing stopped immediately. A child's best defense, Anderson says, against demonic attack is his simple trusting faith. Children are quick to believe. And they usually understand far more than we parents give them credit for. Furthermore, your children have the added protection of being under your authority. As you carefully and prayerfully guard and nurture your freedom in Christ, changes that your children will walk in freedom will take place. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you as a parent addressed it in a spiritual way? Or did you say, hey, call mom up. Mom, what do you do? They just keep doing this. Well, sit them in the corner. 
Or make them run up and down the steps. Or make them write out a sentence. I will not do this. I will not do this. I will not do this. And so they do that. And they say, oh, yeah. Tell your sister you're sorry. I'm sorry. Tell your brother, I'm sorry. Three days later, they're doing the same thing. And then you wonder, why, don't, why isn't the behavior pattern of my children changing? Maybe, just maybe, it's a spiritual issue. Maybe, just maybe, they're being deceived by the enemy that they must do this. Parents, wake up. Your kids are spirit beings. They have a spirit enemy. We have a spirit God. And we can attack in the spiritual realm also. Another preliminary thing is regarding Satan. Satan is limited. He cannot be in more than one place at a time. So if I see four Facebook posts that said, Satan made me do this, he attacked my house, I say, can't be, can't happen. He can't be in every place at the same time. We often give the enemy far too much credit for the, 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 the behavior of our lives and the chaos in our lives because we have made poor sinful choices. Satan can only be in one place at one time. And quite frankly, I think he's probably in a place where there's a most advanced progressive missional march for Jesus Christ. I believe he's there and he's pushing. He's trying to divide and conquer. I believe the enemy is more interested in the large spectrum of where the light of the gospel is in progressively attacking darkness. I believe that's where you'll see the enemy camped. Now, his demons can go many, many places, and they report back to him, and they do the, primarily do all his work. However, Satan can only be in one place at one time. He is not an omnipotent, small God. He's a created being, so he is limited to space and time. He can only be in one place at one time. Satan is most active, where I, I personally believe, like I said, where progress is taking place. In fact, if you begin to heat up for Jesus... I'll guarantee the demons will, repeat, will report back to him and your bullseye will get larger and larger on your back. Anybody can attest to that. Start doing something for Jesus Christ and the heat will take on in your marriage. The heat will take on in your ministry. The heat will take on in your family and your children. And if he can't get to you, Satan's next closest target is probably your child. They get sick. They're attacked. They're rebellious. And all of a sudden, you're distracted because of their behavior and it gets you off track. If he can't get to you, he'll get to your children. He'll get to your wife. He'll get to your husband. So listen to me. Please inform, instruct, equip your children to battle so that when it comes to your house, everybody's armed, everybody's protected, everybody's speaking truth, everybody's shield is large. My primary responsibility as a caregiver and father of my children is to prepare them for life so that when they're on their own, they can stand strong and bold in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the same for you as a parent. It's not to help them to be the best basketball player and to become the best baseball player and to receive all these awards. If my kids get scholarships for that and they don't know how to fight the enemy, then in my mind, I've done a horrible job of parenting. We must equip our kids. Pull away. How are you doing? Are you instructing your children? Are you teaching them the truths? Are you just, you're just, you're, your worldview is all just physical. Slap, bang, sit down, time out, right. Go chase this dream. And one day they will end up with that talent and ability being attacked by the enemy because somehow they get a platform for God and, and the enemy will eat them up unless you equip them. Demons report back to Satan what is happening the majority of the time. Satan has many worshipers. There's a clan right here in Elkhart County, active group of worshiping Satan. Satan cannot read your mind because he's a created being. Satan is crafty, Scripture says. He's clever. He's a deceiver. He's good at what he does. Deception is his greatest strength. It is. It's his greatest strength. He tries to deceive us with these thoughts he causes us to look or wants us to look at situations and our minds say, oh, I wonder what that is. They're probably doing that because of that. Oh, no. And so we go down these paths and he deceives us. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10 that the church has been gifted with many gifts. And one of the gifts of Christ followers that you can have is the gift of discernment. And I believe many, many Christians are gifted with that discernment. 
Now listen, if you're not gifted with that discernment, it doesn't mean you can't concern or discern. Solomon prayed out and asked for a wise and discerning heart, and God gave it to him. The Holy Spirit can discern for us. If our hearts are clean and we haven't quenched the Spirit, he can give us discernment. And so we need to be discerners of truth. I can't tell you how many times. I'm gifted just like you're gifted in different ways. And one of the gifts that I have is the gift of discernment. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at married couples and I've told my wife, something's not right. Something is way off the mark here. I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a situation and and said, something's not right here. I can't tell you how many times I walked away from a meeting and said, wait a minute, something's wrong. And it's the gift of discernment. But that gift could even be squashed if I don't remain obedient to God. Now, God wants us to be discerning. He wants us to discern the Spirit, Scripture says. And so we need to discern the deception that he throws at us. There are some real truths about Satan that we need to bring to light today. The first one is this. He is alive and well today. He's not worn out. He's not tired of what he's doing. It's not like he needs a timeout and says, I need a break. He is as much, if not even more so, bent on wreaking havoc than he's ever been. Grab your Bibles and we're going to take a look at that. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. First, if you need a Bible, hold your hand up or ushers will put one in your hand. But turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll take a look at what we need to do in light of who Satan is. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 9. Stand with me and we'll read it out loud together. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 9. Let's read this together out loud. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 9. Ready? Read. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You may have a seat. We can learn from this that Peter gives us kind of this, this, this step, these steps. This is what we need to do because the enemy prowls around seeking to devour. What's the word devour mean? Devour takes on the idea of consuming us, swallowing us up. So it's this picture because he can't come in and push us around. But when we open ourselves up, he can swallow us. And when you get swallowed, you can't see. And when you get swallowed, you have a mixed view of truth. And when he consumes you with his thinking, you can't hear clarity and truth from God. So he consumes our thoughts, he swallows up our actions, and he eventually influences and controls us. So he's prowling around looking for someone to swallow, looking for to someone to consume, looking for someone who is open to his consuming and his swallowing. I find it interesting in the progression of Scripture here, how Peter sets this up. Look what he says we must do in order to battle. First, he says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. What time? When you're attacked. Then he says this, Cast how much of your anxiety on him? All your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Then he says, Be self-controlled and alert. It's a progression. And the reason we need to do those things is because the enemy is prowling around wanting to devour us. So we need to submit. We need to humble ourselves. We need to strip ourselves of pride. And often that means we need to say, God, you know what? I do need your help. God, I don't know everything. God, I want you to lead me. And so Bible tells us in James, it tells us in Proverbs that pride leads to destruction. And so we need to humble ourselves. It's the spirit of humility, pulling away and saying, God, not my will, but your will. Then he says this, we must cast all our anxiousness on him. Show me someone who is a worry worked. Show me someone who defaults to worrying about everything 
or anything. I will show you a person who will be devoured by the enemy. Why? Because the progression of thought is, if you don't cast your anxieties on him, you will be devoured. Show me someone who is negative, who always sees the glass like, like it's only half full, and who wants to point faults and, and say, so we can't do that, and just has this worry, don't do that, this fearful, I can't step through that. I will show you a person who's being swallowed, who's being consumed by the enemy. And so if we refuse to strip ourselves of worry and anxiety, you will be bullied around by a toothless, roaring lion. So we're supposed to humble ourselves. We're supposed to cast all of our care. And then it says, be self-controlled and alert. In other words, be properly propped up by God, by the armor, by his word, by time with him, by walking in truth. Be controlled and alert. It's a sense of, You're walking into enemy's territory and you're alert. You're not being tempted by the voices, but you're on the offense and not the defense. Someone that's alert is seeing it before someone else sees it. One translation has be sober-minded. It means have a clear mind. Don't be distracted by the voices of the enemy. And so he's alive and well, but for us, we need to be alive and well too. I love what it says here, be self-controlled. I often have people say, well, I'm just not a disciplined person. And I say, then you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you. Because Timothy says this, it says that we should not have a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power and self-control. Self-control and discipline is something that Christ gives to people who walk in the Spirit. You have control, not on your own power, but the power of Jesus walking through you to overcome any bad habits in your life. And so self-control has nothing to say, well, that person was just born with a lot of discipline. No, that person is walking in the spirit and realizes this discipline pattern helps me to be alert. So with that in mind, we have a real enemy that can devour us, that can consume us. And we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks, but we have responsibility also. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, he calls Satan the ruler of the air. In Ephesians 2, 2. The New Living Translation says this. He's the commander of the powers of the unseen world. And by the way, Satan doesn't play by his own rules. His native language, John 8, 44 says, is the father of lies. Lies is his native language. Satan doesn't fight fair. He's not going to give you a break. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a diabolical angel of light who comes to you in a thousand guises, tempting you to disobey the Lord. He's a lot smarter than many of us want to give him credit for. I'm not going to stand here and say that he isn't very smart. Satan is very smart. Just take a look at your life. Take a look at the pattern of your life. Take a look at lives around you. Why is it that so many Christ followers... Why is it that so many Christ followers are leveled and find themselves in total destruction? Because somewhere along the line, the enemy has been able to deceive, to disguise himself with truth and speak a lie. And people calling themselves Christ followers have been ill-equipped, ill-armored, haven't been ready and alert. Their shield of faith is small and they believe a lie from the enemy and he eats them up. He's a lot smarter than most will give him the rights to. The Bible says he has schemes. What are schemes? They're traps, they're tricks, they're tactics. I said last week, and I'll say this again, we need to study our enemy. And so hopefully this week, I did again. What was it this week that really caused me to consider having this poor attitude? What was it this week that really caused me to be on the defensive What was it this week that caused me to to question? And so when those kind of things come up, that's a red flag in my mind. Oh, that was the disguise of the enemy. And so the next time it comes, guess what? I'm saying, not this time. We need to be watching our enemy. We need to be taking notes. Because if you don't, then you will continually get pushed around by a toothless, roaring lion. He has no rules. I watch it happen over and over in local churches. I watch it happen in marriages. And here's a, here's a classic example how Satan works. A couple gets married, 
And this one individual brings something from their past, and they bring it into this marriage. They've been cleansed of it. They've confessed it. They've been forgiven of it. God has forgiven it as far as the east and chooses not to remember it. From the east is from the west. They walk into this relationship, and something happens that looks similar to what happened back here. And the other spouse might say, well, you're just going to do what you did before. Oh, what a seed that is from the enemy. And so all of a sudden, that person begins to think, well, if he's doing that here, I know he or she did that there. So that means this is going to happen. And before you know it, you believe a lie, and you're down this path. You're hating this person. You're believing anything that can surface. And so instead of looking at a positive model that has overcome in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that they have a past, we, enemy likes us to look back and say, well, guess what? That could probably happen to you. Instead of saying, look what Jesus did to that redeemed marriage. I choose to disbelieve this thought that I'm thinking, knowing that there's going to be a day because of the power of Jesus Christ that we're going to be right there. I watch it happen in ministries. A ministry begins to thrive, begins to just push back darkness. And all of a sudden, people are getting a little nervous. Like, well, I remember a ministry that was doing that too. And this person did that. And all of a sudden, it went south. And all of a sudden, people and, and uh, leaders and, and other people get around and say, we can't allow this to happen because if that happens, then the same thing will happen here. And I want to say, get your mind out of the gutter. Look ahead and say, let's look at what Jesus could do. And so this suppression takes place. I can tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people and the, the gift of the sermon is like, oh my goodness, isn't that the classic line of the enemy? We need to discern. By the way, the Holy Spirit's role in us staying on top is critical. We can't quench it or put out its fire. We must remain clean in our walk. The Bible says this in John 10, 10. It says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. He says that Jesus has come. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. Think about it. If that was your mission statement every day you woke up, today we're going to kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan has been on that mission since the time he was cast out of heaven. By the way, he's pretty good at it. Jesus said in John, 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. By the way, Satan hasn't lost any of his steam and angst against us. If anything, he's better at what he's doing. Seriously, stop and consider that for a moment. He has been honing his craft since the cross for almost 2,000 years. Now, wrap your mind around that for a second. If you did anything for 2,000 years, don't you think you'd get pretty good at it? Suppose you were a welder. And you're on the assembly line. And if that's what you did for 2,000 years, after 2,000 years, you would probably be the, the best welder there was. And the reality is he has an advantage on some when you don't walk in the power and authority of Jesus. Let me explain what I mean by that. He is a seasoned veteran, but most people live for 75 years. So here's, here's, here's why you say... You ask this question, why is it then that we haven't gained ground if this Bible's been around for 2,000 years and we know that he's deceiving and we know that he has schemes and tactics? Why don't we have an advantage? How come we don't see more victorious Christians? Why does it appear like the world gets more evil and evil as time moves on? Shouldn't there finally be some progression for us? Because he's been doing the same thing. Here's what happens though. People come and go. So what happens is we live for 70, 75 years, some 80 years, some 60 years. And if we don't pass on the tools, if you're not equipping your children, and you're not passing on to your grandchildren, or you're living in sin, and you're not equipping the next generation to come, he just gets them, consumes them, and suppresses them, and they end up beaten. And then what happens is they live in sin, they grow up, they pass down the sins of because they're fathers to their kids, and they repeat the cycle of destruction over and over and over and over again. So we have to equip. I feel even today, my prayer is this. I pray that when you leave this auditorium today here in the main, the link, and across the internet, that you are equipped, that you just don't say, well, it's great, Jim, works for you, and you go home. Listen to me. 
you will get swallowed up. And some of you continue to get swallowed up. Same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And what you're doing, you're going to pass it down to your kids. We have authority in Jesus' name to overcome. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. So a child is born. We've had some new babies born. The very first thing Satan wants to do is get your child and steal their soul. And so he is after them through demon attacks, trying to twist the truth, trying to batter. And if you're not properly equipping your child, then you will raise up a child who constantly gets pushed around. We need to raise up warriors. We need to raise up sons and daughters that stand in the authority of Jesus Christ and say, not in my house, not in my future, and for the future generations come, I'm going to break some chains, and there's going to be victory in my name in this lineage. That's what we need to raise. Church, we have that opportunity to do that. But let me ask, are you though? What are you passing on? Doubt, anxiety, worry, pornography, addictions. Listen to me. In the strong name of Jesus, we have been made. We can be equipped. We can walk in victory. See, here's what happens. We think we can't. We think, well, I can't. It's just impossible. And when you say that, you believe a lie from the pit of hell, and you basically said that the enemy hasn't been disarmed. Listen, he's a toothless, roaring enemy without a weapon. It's time. We walk in victory. The other handicap that we have that continues to pass down is that we believe that we aren't strong enough or that we have too much junk in our past. Listen to me. That's another lie from Satan. Where did this battle begin with humans? What began in the beginning? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you something. He's been at this for a very, very, very long time. Very long time, for thousands of years. And his tactics are very similar, but he's really good at what he does. And so we need to take a look and say, okay, what did he do there? I bet he'll do it now. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Look at verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more what? Crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. This passage always disturbs me. It's one of the saddest stories in scripture. When I read this, I think, How would things be different had not they believed the lie of the enemy? Imagine the battles that you wouldn't have to fight and I wouldn't have to fight. If Adam and Eve had just said no. Now imagine the battles that your kids might not have to fight if you just say no, not on my watch. If we don't stop the carnage, it just keeps getting past on. We must stand in the authority of Jesus Christ. I find it interesting to look at his schemes here. Here are some of his tactics that we see here. The first is this, his ability to speak. His speaking is not represented as remarkable or unusual. I got to be very honest. When I read this, I have to ask this question. Eve, doesn't it seem strange that a serpent is talking? It's like something's wrong. It's like my gift of discernment really doesn't have to come into action. No other animals are talking, but there's this snake that's talking to you. Eve, something's wrong with this picture. 
I want to say, and the reality is, I want to say to so many of us, and even to me sometimes, when I walk in and I hear someone speak, I often pull away and say, wait a minute, something's very wrong with this picture. If we don't discern that something is wrong, then we will be duped into another scheme of the devil. I also find it interesting, his tactics here, he possesses great knowledge as seen from his statement. And he says, did God really say? How does the serpent know about the prohibition concerning the forbidden fruit? Here's how he knew. He was there watching. Look, oh man, there's my chance. He was watching the conversation and heard the conversation that God had with Adam in Genesis 1 and 2, 1 and 16. He says, I, he was there. He was already planning his attacks. So you know what that means? He's been watching you. Over Thanksgiving, he was watching those that struggle with gluttony. Huh. I'll make sure that Aunt Sally brings another pecan pie with whipped cream on it. And I'll bring it in, and there you will. Ah, oh, that's their weakness. Or coming into your house, and he'll bring in someone that you haven't seen in a while, and you are so angry with that person because they did that. And out of nowhere, Weird Al shows up. There he is. There he is. You see, he's been watching. And so even here, he knew what God had said to Adam regarding the tree, and he twisted the truth. He has great knowledge. And by the way, he's watching your kids. He's watching you. He's watching you right now, how you're responding to this message. He can't get into your mind, but he's seeing if you checked out. He's noticing if you're taking notes. Oh, I'll get that person because they think they're going to remember all this. They're not going to remember it. And so he is watching the patterns that you're living with right now. He is ready to get you. Another thing I see here, he claims to know more about the fruit than God has revealed. And he does the same thing today. Oh, he says, it won't hurt you. Or this little bump will just move you up a notch. You most certainly won't die. Listen, God just says that because he doesn't want you to know as much as he does. It'll be okay. It won't be that bad. Listen, didn't you see your aunt do it and your brother do it and your classmate do it? Listen, look at them. They live a happy life and you don't know what happens to them when they go home at night and what they're battered with and what's underneath. And yet you think, well, if they did it, I can do it. It wasn't so bad. Classic Satan. What else did he do here? He challenges the character and motives of God by telling Eve, contrary to what God had said, you shall not surely die. He implies either that God is selfish or deceitful or both. He twists the truth and his desires to serve your best interests. And he says things like this. Well, if God really loved you, then how come you don't have what they have? If God really loved you, then how come you didn't get that job and they did? If God really loved you, and since you're so faithful and praying, how come your kid has this disease? If God really loved you, then your marriage would look like that marriage. How, comes it do how come it doesn't? If God really loved you, then why did bankruptcy land? If he loved you, wouldn't he have intervened? Oh, classic Satan. He tries to usurp and degrade and make God look less than he loves you. Let me tell you something. God loves you just as much in your very worst as your very best condition. And he knows what he's doing. And the minute you say he doesn't is the second Satan has a clamp on your life and he will swallow you up. When those thoughts come, listen to me, they don't come from Jesus. They come from the pit of hell and they come from Satan. And you capture that thought and say, no, that's not true. You replace it with the truth from scripture. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. That, that God loves me as far as the east is from the west. That the depth of his love is, is, is no way can be measured. And so you capture it, you replace it with scripture, and then you speak truth. God, you love me and I love you, and Satan is defeated. He goes after the most vulnerable. I find it interesting in this account. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this before, but the serpent tries to attack Eve. By the way, there's nowhere in this biblical account. In fact, 
Genesis 1.16 says that God went to Adam and told him about the tree. He, Eve wasn't even there. And so now, here, here's what happens. The serpent comes, Satan comes, he attacks the woman and says, God might have said this. The only way she got that information was from her husband. And so in her mind, she might be thinking, huh, did he really tell me everything God said? Huh, he is so good at twisting the truth and pitting husbands against wives. And he seemingly, he plants a seemingly deep seed of doubt. Did God really say that? He also exaggerates the extent of the prohibition and thereby suggests that God has placed unreasonable and unfair limitations on Adam and Eve. He wants us to believe that we have the right to cast judgment on God. Like, why would God be so hard on you? If he was a loving God, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Why? Look at Bob. And look at look at Sally and look at look at Jennifer. Look, she doesn't even she's, she's, she doesn't even come to prayer encounter. She doesn't even go to ladies' Bible study. She only comes to church twice a week. Look at look at look at her life. Well, look at mine. What God, I'm doing all this stuff. Maybe just maybe it might be a Job story and, and Satan has come to, to to God and said, Hey. This person only loves you because everything's fine. Let's see what happens when their life falls apart. You see, Satan's power can only be demonstrated on a person to the extent which God gives it to him. Maybe God is test, allowing Satan to test you. So we can't. But Satan comes in and twists the truth. After studying myself and followers of Christ, the thing that Satan wants to do, he wants to alienate and separate you. He wants you to push you away from cities of community. He wants you to say that you can do it all by yourself. Let me tell you something. The minute you walk away from accountability, the minute you walk away from someone checking your life is the minute you're a second away from failing miserably. He wants to dismantle community. He wants you not to be in a large community where people are constantly watching your life. Because if no one's watching your life, then you can do whatever you want, you think, and no one will see. Classic Satan. Separate, alienate, destroy. So you have to come back to community. You've got to come back where there's, there's, there's community around you and accountability. And the larger the community, the larger the accountability, the more awareness that people have of your life. I often say to people, if you want great accountability and you want everyone to know who you are, and you have to live in a glass house, welcome to my world, everywhere I go. Seriously, I'm okay with that. I could walk to any place. People are constant. They watch how I cheer at basketball games. They watch my response when someone says something funny. I'm okay with that. Here's why. Because the larger the accountability, the greater the influence you can have. Listen to me, church. Did you hear what I said? You put yourselves in larger communities, the greater influence you can have on those communities. But only through the authority and power of Jesus Christ. When was all this power shifted? When did he lose his power? It happened at the cross. He was, his weapon was removed. Let me give you a really, really important. There's some, there's some fuzziness or confusion out there regarding where... Jesus went when he died on the cross. And I want to bring clarity to it. At the cross, in Colossians 2.15, it tells us this. It says that the enemy was disarmed and a, he was, a public spectacle was made of him. In other words, when Jesus went to the cross, he bore all our sins and he overcame those and he was the perfect redeemer. And because of that, we were set free. There was no longer a need. Old Testament, when someone committed a sin... They would, they would sacrifice a perfect lamb. So up to that time, their, their sins were covered with blood. And so when Jesus came, he was the blood that covered all of our sin. There was no longer a need for sacrifices before. During the Old Testament, before the cross, when a follower of God died, have you ever wondered where they went? Scripture tells us this. When a follower of God died, they went to a place called Hades. Now, hang on a second. There's two compartments to Hades. There's a righteous side 
there's an unrighteous side. So if you were alive before the cross and you died and you weren't a follower of Yahweh and believed in God and the Messiah to come, you were unsaved. You went to the unrighteous side of Hades, which was filled with with fire similar to hell. There was a righteous side where followers of God went. They had yet to be ushered into heaven. And so as a result of that, they were held captive by Satan. But they weren't harmed. It's a righteous side. But they couldn't get access to God and enter into heaven until a redeemer came at the cross. And his name was Jesus Christ. So what happened was when Jesus died, Scripture gives us a a, a great example of this. In John 19 and verse 30 says, Jesus says, it is finished. And the moment he said it was finished, his soul departed him and he entered. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 9 says he went to the lower earthly regions. Some say he went to hell. He did not go to hell. The translation in Hebrew and the Greek is Hades. It's a different place. Jesus went to Hades. And what happened was he went there and he took the keys that the enemy had guarding the gate. He kicked the gate open from the inside and freed all the righteous followers of God and ushered them into the presence of Jesus Christ. Now listen. Where do we get the public spectacle part? Have you ever wondered that? Well, how was that a public spectacle? Here's what it was. When God himself, Jesus himself, ushered these saints out of this, this Hades righteous side, he took Satan with him. And when they went before God, they made a public spectacle of the enemy and said, you have been defeated. I hold the keys. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. Revelation 1.18 says, He holds the keys of death and Hades. He's been disarmed, church. He can't hold anyone captive anymore. But he can consume you and devour you if you let him. So what are some ways people have asked me? Does he still trip us up today? Well, the answer is this. He still does trip us up today, even though power has been stripped. Because we allow him to. I hope and pray. I hope and pray that you put the armor on now. I hope and pray that you've prayed through your homes. I hope and pray that you are watching your enemy. I hope and pray that you're developing a disciplined life. I hope and pray that you're walking away from your addictions. I hope and pray that you're walking away from from these thoughts that say you can't overcome. I hope and pray, because if you don't, you open yourselves up to being controlled and influenced by the enemy. Some have asked me this question, can Satan be saved? And I just quite frankly say no. Why? You mean he could never get to a point where he could finally believe? The reason he can't be saved is because the canon has been completed. And it gives his destination, and guess what? He gets thrown into hell with the false prophet and the beast. He will not be saved. And he knows that. And so he is bent on bringing as many with him as he can. Some have asked if Satan believes he can win. Can he deceive himself? I'm sure there's moments he actually believes that. But listen to me. He knows his destination. In fact, James says that even the demons believe in God and shudder. Why would you shudder if you thought, you were not going to lose. Here's what Satan does. Here's some of his schemes. Scripture says this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the truth. And so he constantly bombards them with lies. He masquerades in costumes of light and righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15 says. In other words, he comes looking like this person walks into your life This is the greatest person I've ever met. Wow, a lady says, he's got everything I've ever wanted. And underneath, he's masqueraded. The outside's masquerade as darkness. And all of a sudden, he controls you and he takes you down path and he seduces you and he takes you where you shouldn't have been. Classic Satan. Bible also says that he can perform signs and wonders. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. He can do things that people are like, wow, that must be God. We should follow that group. 
And you know what happens? They end up dying with quarters in their pockets. Satan also tempts people. Matthew chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 verses 1 to 9 says he plucks the word of God out of people's heart and he chokes off their faith. We share evangelism. Satan comes behind his demons and they grab the seed so that people can't know the truth. Satan fights against the plans of missionaries. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 17. Satan causes some sickness and disease. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 says that they were under the power of the evil one. Yes, some sickness even comes from Satan. By the way, not all sickness, but some sickness. So when sickness comes, do you call the pharmacist first, the doctor first, or do you call the great physician? Go to the great physician first. Satan accuses Christians before God, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Daily he accuses. Satan pits Christians against other Christians with lies. Like, well, he can't be that sincere. There's no one way he could ever do that or she could ever do that. You can't believe them. And so he pits jealousy. Jealous men see someone that God is elevating or using. A jealous woman seeing a marriage that she wants. And all of a sudden, jealousy steps in or, or pride steps in and they try to destroy. God even, Satan even uses men and women of God to destroy if we open ourselves up. But let me give you the good news. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Please turn there. Look at verses 7 to 10. Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. I'll read this and then I'll pray and we'll close with a victorious song that speaks of this reality. Revelation 20, verse 7 says, When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle in number. They are like the sand on the seashore. They march across the breadth of the earth, surrounded in the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and what? Devoured them. And the what? Who'd what them? Was thrown into the lake of burning what? Where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. God, we know we won. We know what the battle plan says that you win. We know Satan's destination. But we also know, God, that he is a real enemy. Lord, I pray that we would walk in discipline and righteousness. I pray that we would not just blow this off. And maybe we need to go back and sit with our families and say, from this day forward, we're going to live differently. I pray for victory in our thought life. I pray for victory in our actions. I pray, God, that you would reign. I pray, Jesus, for power and victory over sickness and death that is destroying the Christian church. I pray that from the ashes a victorious church would rise and that from this generation that's in front of me, that, that the evil would be diminished and there would be a return and a hunger for Jesus Christ and the good things of his word. Please, God, move in a strong way. In Jesus' name.